You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, good morning. How are you? We doing good? Yeah, yes. We're doing good. Well, let me start by saying, yes, woohoo, Trevor in the back, the hands up. Let me start by saying, you guys sound like super pretty this morning, so thanks for bringing your best voices. Uh, and what I love about, you hear me say this from time to time, what I love about when the church sings is we can bring our worst voices and somehow the spirit makes it sound good. And so I'm grateful for that, um, for me and for all the other people that don't necessarily sound good when it's just us, but when we're together, like it sounds great. Amen. We good, yeah, amen. Uh, well, as we get going this morning, I just want to welcome you. My name is uh, Jason, one of the pastors here at Westwood. If you don't know me, um, I'd love to get to know you after the service. Come find me. I'd love to connect with you. Um, but I want to start us off just to kind of get us in the know of what happens in this space from week to week. And I think we come here on a Sunday morning like, man, this is great. This is fun to have our own building. And it's great to have the chairs and all that good jazz that comes with it. But I think sometimes we don't think about that in this space, a lot of things happen throughout the week. We do student ministry here on Wednesday nights um, and we do weird things in this room. Um, nothing weird, inappropriate, but just, you know, weird things. And so there's things that go on during the week. Yesterday we had our women in the room and they were processing, well, actually Friday night and Saturday, we're processing through the IF gathering, which is an incredible women's conference that happens. And we're, they were streaming that online and being together in the space and just to think about about that God doesn't just show up in this room on a Sunday. He shows up in this room on a Wednesday. He shows up at this room on a Friday night, on a Saturday, and then prepares us for Sunday um, for some amazing things that are to come. And so I just want to celebrate that, that God's doing things here in our church through all the different areas of ministries. We have life groups that meet in this building each week. Uh, and it's just cool to be a part of that 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 ministry that God is doing through our lives. And, and with that, I want to point you guys to this card. Because on the front side of this, it talks about the things that are coming up. Uh, for kids, uh, for husbands, just a, a precursor, um, next week's Mom's Day. Um, so, you know, just be prepared. But we're doing child dedications next week. We've got that, that coming up um, for us. We've got some things coming up for students because the school year is almost over. Only a few more weeks left until summer. Amen? Yes. Teachers in the room, Amen. There it is. That's the ones who really care. Um, and so we got that coming up. We've got end of the year parties uh, for our student ministry, which is going to be amazing. And the other thing we get to do this time of year, just as a church, is to celebrate what God has done through our ministry year, and that's through our annual meeting. And so this is more than just talking about approving things and, and talking about money. And that will happen. You guys get to listen to me talk about money. Aren't you excited? Yeah, we, but most importantly, we get to look back over this year and see what God has done throughout the year. And we love to do that in our annual meeting. And this year, we're going to do a little differently. We're going to do it right after the service on Sunday. Y'all are already here. So we're just going to keep you here, but we're going to feed you along the way. We're going to do some really cool food stuff. And so um, check out this card, check out the website. It'll talk about how we're doing it. We're doing this little thing called what Pastor Keith likes to call the taste of Westwood. So kind of bringing our best to the table. And so y'all 
all get to feast on our best. It's like the greatest potluck of all time. Uh, and then you get to listen to me talk about money, which is awesome, right? So this is going to be really good. But don't mark that calendar. Uh, mark your calendars for the March 20, or May 22nd. Uh, we're way past March. May 22nd, we'll be here and we'll have lunch together and we'll be able to celebrate what God is doing, what he has done, and, and dream forward to what we believe he's calling us towards and what we get to be excited about what he's going to do in our future, which is going to be amazing. And so on the back side of this card, if you're new, there's a connect piece on this. In the back side of the place of prayer, we'd love to get to know you all um, and, and just get you connected. Our guest services volunteers, the back of the room before you leave, check in with them. I'd love to give you a gift and just say thanks for being with us. But you also see uh, on the back side of this note page. Now, let me take a moment and, and point. So if, if you know me at all, and I, I preached a little bit throughout the year, the biggest, one of the big differences between Pastor Keith and myself is this. Um, when you look, this is a good primer. If you ever want to know who's preaching on a weekend and you get the weekly update, you click on that, like the, the worship guide and the weekly update. When you, when I'm preaching, this is blank. Like it's all for you. Like you just, you can color, you can like draw, you can play dots. Um, you can, you can do whatever you want. Um, but pastor Keith will have this and he's got these incredible notes that he walked you through. No matter who's preaching and no matter what this page looks like, it's for you to process what the Lord's doing and what he's speaking through his word. And so um, it, it's not that one's different, it's just different. But here's what I want you to do. If you've got a pen, um, or if your neighbor's got a pen, borrow your pen. If your neighbor's 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 got a pen, borrow their pen. And so on this page somewhere, it doesn't matter. Don't draw huge, because hopefully you'll take some other notes along the way. But I just want you to draw a circle. Just put a circle on there. And I'm going to come back to that circle later. And so if you have a pen, draw. If you don't have a pen, that's fine. Just make a mental circle. Just like, like in your head, just draw a little circle in your, in your mental space in your head. And we're going to come back to that uh, near the end of the sermon. But I do want to encourage that we engage God's word as we walk through God's word today. So on that note, we will be in Acts chapter 24. Acts is coming to a close. We're almost there, just a couple chapters away. It's been a beautiful journey through the book of Acts, yes. Um, but we're coming down down to the to end of this book and this end of this narrative of the history of the church. And it's really, really exciting. And so as we dive into these next couple of weeks, I get to preach next week as well and just uh, talk about Paul's uh, season in trial. Uh, but something I've had conversations about over the last few weeks with just random people is weather. Um, everyone loves weather. I mean, you look outside today, like, wow, Iowa weather is awesome, right? And you're like, this is so exciting, Iowa weather. We love the Iowa weather. And it's always, everywhere you go in the country, it's like, oh, this is just Iowa weather. This is just, everyone says that in every state in the world. Um, it's just everywhere, it, it's just, this is, this is European weather. This is just what it's like. This is what it's like in Australia. We all say the same thing. We just think we're special because of where we live. It's just, we all live through weird weather. And so we're talking about the different places I've lived. I've lived around the country. Um, I'm literally from coast to coast and places in the middle. And every part of the country has all these unique weather patterns. So when I lived in California, uh, earthquakes were a norm. Um, you, you experience earthquakes regularly. Uh, some you notice and some you don't. Some I think you just, when you live there, you just kind of get used to it. And you're like, did I, did I eat something wrong for lunch? Or w did the ground just shake a little bit? And then there's like the big ones, uh, the worst one I ever experienced, but it was also worse, but also very cool. Um, earthquakes happen in a couple ways. Either they shake you violently or they roll you. And so I remember sitting in the living room of our house and we had the chandelier that when it starts to move, you're like, oh, something's coming. And, and then you're like, wait, what do I do? 
Do I go outside? Do I get under a table? Do I get an endorphin? No one really knows. Um, here in Iowa, we have like the sirens go off like, well, how long do I have? Do I have time to go outside and take a photo and just to kind of figure out what's going on? Um, but in, in California, I remember watching this earthquake move through and it literally rolled the walls of our house. I was like, that is the coolest thing. Wait, am I supposed to go outside right now? Cause I'm mesmerized by what's happening in my home and see the walls do this. And the fact that someone constructed something that, that can take that is amazing. Like my house still was standing at the end of that couple of minutes. Uh, but here in Iowa, we've got things like tornadoes, thunderstorms, lightning storms. Those are big deals. Um, if you live, I don't know, in, in Phoenix, Arizona, I like to say the word haboob, but basically it's, it's a sandstorm. You have these sandstorms. I have friends that live in Phoenix and they'll have these huge sandstorms. So imagine like the craziest movie you've ever seen, Hildago. Anyone see the movie Hildago? Like there, he's running away from the sands. Like that happens here in the United States. It's crazy. Maybe not of that size, but it still happens. Um, and then you get to the East Coast, Florida, Southerners, anyone? North Carolina, Florida, Brett, where are you? There you go. You get these things called hurricanes. Now, hurricanes, I think, are, are crazy interesting, as every storm is. Um, but they create this, this weather system, which is really this combination of all these different weather systems. Now, here's my little preface to this. I'm a pastor. I've been trained in the Bible and things. I know nothing about the weather. So if you are a, a meteorologist or a weather fanatic, forgive me. I'm going to totally botch this one. But I want to put this picture up here of this hurricane. I believe this is Hurricane Irma um, that, that blew through some years back. And what's so crazy about hurricanes is as all these weather fronts come together, we see them converge and create this, this storm that starts to create this cycle and it starts to, to move in a circle, sort of. Because at the center of the storm, it cycles in one way and on the outside of the storm, it cycles in the other. It's the weirdest the washing machine ever. But what I love about these is that, I was just talking with someone this morning that even as destructive as our tornadoes or storms or earthquakes or whatever it can be, that's the sad side of it. But there's this crazy beauty to them as well. As you see how nature kind of works and, and starts to really wrestle and fight with one another. And you look at a, at a hurricane like this and, and here's kind of how things work. The storms come together, kind of all starts converging and then slowly, little by little, it starts to work together and it starts to, to swirl in this way. And as it swirls, it can get larger and larger and larger to the point that we see storms like this be created. And so at the other, we've all heard the term eye of the storm. That's this spot right here. That's the eye of the storm. And so in the middle of that eye, that eye is created because there's low pressure to high pressure. The winds start moving in and basically the wind comes up from the bottom. It's creating moisture from the ocean. So it's taking all the water, all the heat from the ocean It's pulling all the air up. Okay, so it's swirling in this direction up through this eye of the storm. And then that swirling is now hitting the top of the storm and it's pushing all the air out to the outer edges of the storm and then it's pushing it back underneath. And so it's like the Dyson vacuum, they probably studied this and this is why Dyson vacuums uh, have such great suction because they understood like, let's get this up and then around and up and around and it pulls in all the dirt, right? Hurricanes function in that same way. And so they, it pulls all the air up the center of this cone, the eye of the storm. It pushes it out the top, pushes it out the outer edges of the storm, sucks it back in underneath by the water and pulls it up again. 
But there's a weird phenomena that happens, which is this is what creates the eye of the storm. You have this thing, this blue line, this yellow and blue, it's called the eye wall. But what happens here in the center is the air is being pulled up out of that eye. Some of it's getting dispersed to the edge of the storm, which is creating all the, the tumultuousness of this storm. But there's some of this air that sits above the eye and then falls back down. And when it falls back down and it creates that space in the eye of the storm where virtually nothing is happening. Nothing's happening. Right here to the point of all of this going on, this is the huge craziness. Hundreds and hundreds, 150 mile an hour winds is going on around here. The darker the color, similar to us here in Iowa, our tornadoes, the darker the colors, the more fierce the wind, the storm, the rain, etc. And so as it gets out, or to, out to the edge, it, it lessens in its, 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 uh, the, the structure and the fierceness of the storm. And here around the eye where it sees the red, this is the worst part of the storm. So right around the edge of the eye wall, is the, that's where it's the hardest. The winds are the strongest. The worst of the worst is happening right here. You get to the edge and it's a little bit less. Now, I don't know the, the distance. I believe this is a picture of uh, Hurricane Irma. And so it can be anywhere from 150 to 200 miles from this blue line at the eye wall to the very edge of the green line, 100, 250, 200 miles. That's a long ways, right? This eye itself can be 20 to 40 miles in diameter. So in the middle of this storm, all of this pressure is happening. This air is falling down. It's clearing everything out. And for 20 or 40 miles, there's this weird moment of dare I call it peace with this weird space that that things just seem calm but right on the edge of that eye all craziness is breaking loose right at the edge of this eye is the worst of the storm but right in the middle of it there's this this calm that's happening I've never been in the eye of the storm, at least that I'm aware of. I've never lived in the place to where I experienced the, 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 the worst and worst of the hurricane. I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia for a little bit. And I've experienced this side of the storm, right? It's pretty bad. So when the hurricanes move in land, it loses all that water pressure and the heat and stuff from the ocean. So it starts to calm down and it starts to dissipate. And the center of the storm, the eye, becomes the norm. And oftentimes, following hurricanes, uh, as the destruction is left, but the air, the sky, it's as clear as can be. It's, it's crazy. So it's almost as if the center, this eye of the storm, almost takes over what's, what's, what the rest of the storm did. Now, it leaves some destruction, which is the sad part. But I want to focus on that center part. When that storm is raging, when those winds are howling and ripping trees and houses and things out of the ground, there's a part of that storm where it's completely calm. That it feels like nothing's going on. If you're standing in the eye of the storm, similar to this image is what I love about it, you can actually see in this picture the ocean 
If this was over ground, you'd be able to see the ground in the eye of the storm. You could see straight through it because nothing's happening there. It's calm and it's peaceful. So let's flip open to Acts 24. I'm going to read through the whole chapter. It's going to be on our screens, but if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you guys to open your Bibles up and just participate through that reading. Um, and what we like to do here at Westwind is just to stand in honor of God's word. And so let's stand. I'm going to read through the whole passage, but it's not super long. And just draw out what's going on for Paul in these days. And we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 24 of Acts. And it says this, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining, examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, though they thought they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At that same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. 
When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Y'all can have a seat. So we see some interesting things happen in Paul's journey. And we're going to see this over the next couple of weeks. That Paul is in trial. And so he's going to sit in a a form of prison, um, not to the point to where he's shackled to a wall in this scenario, but he's put in quarters that he has some freedoms. And so we see this throughout, uh, uh, throughout his other letters that people come and care to him um, during this time. So he's able to have friends come and help take care of his needs. We see some of the other New Testament churches sending uh, money and gifts and care packages, for instance, to help take care of him during this time. But Paul is in custody in jail for two years, starting at this time. Two years. And he's going through these accusations of, of what the, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, um, the Pharisees, etc., are bringing against him. And what's so interesting about this part of the story is absolutely how ridiculous their argument is. Because Paul just says, well, th- let's talk about what they're accusing me of. There's really no merit to it. And so if, if you need, I can, I'm going to speak on my defense. And Paul's kind of bringing, he's not getting angry. He's just saying, this is just what it is. And if you need someone to bring uh, some clarity to this, go find the people I was with in Jerusalem and bring them here. They'll tell you. But, but you don't even need to do that. You can talk to the people that are here and they'll tell you that what I'm saying is true. And so it's interesting to look down through this trial because it really is a trial of errors on the Jews' part. They're trying so hard to accuse Paul of things that just are not accurate. And so let's look at some of those inaccuracies of what's going on. But put in picture of what's happening right now. They're in front of Festus. They're presenting their case. And it's not just the Jews. They... they, took an approach here that we haven't seen them take before. They went out and lawyered up. They found this guy, Tertullus, who likely could have been a Greek or a Roman citizen who understood uh, Roman law, who understood Roman court systems and brought him in to kind of play the point. So Tertullus is there and he's kind of done some of his homework as a lawyer should and trying to uh, uh, debate his side of the argument for his uh, representing party. And I don't think he did a really good job probably because he's not really engaged. He's there for the money. He's just trying to get his job done, but he's doing the best he can, um, but he's, he's not really talking much sense. So let's take this. There's three accusations that they bring against Paul. The first accusation is that Paul is a plague. <laughs> wow, that must be hard to hear. I mean, imagine if, if one of your friends came up to you or maybe a spouse or whatever, and it's like, man, you are a plague. Like you are the worst ever. You are something that comes in and you add disease and you are destroying this thing. And, and just, you're, you're gross. You know, like no one wants you. That's essentially what they're saying. Other places where that word really translate is that you're a pest. You're a pest. You're bugging me. And so they say that he is a plague. It's the number one accusation. And so they're pulling it out and saying, you're, you're, you're kind of creating this, this virus in the middle of us. And, and you're st- you're stirring things up. Now, as a plague, as a pest, I'm not sure how you really verify that in a court of law. 
Um, but if we go back to chapter 21, which is a lot of where they're pointing to, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, we begin to see uh, how this, their, their argument, Tertullus' argument starts to fall apart. And so in chapter 21, verse 17 to 21, it says, When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. After greeting them, he related to one of the things, uh, one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews of those who you believed, and they are zealous for the law. Paul's not even in the community. They're accusing him of being a plague, and he's not even outside. He's hanging out with the elders. He's, he's probably having a meal, because we, we see that throughout his ministry. He comes back, he has a meal. He shares and breaks bread with them, and he tells them of what God has been doing on his ministry journeys. This is similar to, we've had, uh, if you're familiar, Matt Devers has come when he's been here. He's come and shared what God has been doing in his ministry. This is what Paul's doing in that place. He comes to the church and he says, let me tell you about what God has been doing in the ministry that I've been called to lead. He's with the elders. He's in a closed room. He's not kind of being a pest to anybody. And we see that. And so Paul's pointing back to that in chapter 24, verse 14 and 15, when he makes his defense that I confess to you that according to the way the sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believe everything was laid down the law and the prophets. He's just sharing, like, this is just what God has been doing in and around my life. So this plague thing, I mean, it's, it's a little under interpretation. Like, I get that you all don't like me, but just because you don't like me doesn't mean that I'm doing something wrong especially by the point of the court of law. Like, imagine this. If you all don't like what I've got to say this morning, and I don't necessarily say anything bad. I'm not being a heretic up here or anything. I just, you just don't like the fact that I rolled my sleeves up and I got these glasses on instead of my other glasses, or you don't like the color of my jeans in comparison. I'm like wearing blue, black, and brown, probably the worst fashion choice of all time, right? And you don't like that. So you're going to take me to court tomorrow, and, and, and you're going to say, you know what, this guy here, he's a pest. He just like, he can't dress himself right. He looks kind of funny. And I just don't like the, the, the way he talks. He's got this weird slur thing. Like, I just, I don't like it. He's a pest. The court of law, the judge will look at you like, what are we doing here? Like, what is happening? And so it's really up to interpretation, this first accusation. And Paul's just trying to point out, hey, I was literally just hanging out with other brothers and sisters in Christ, talking about what God had been doing in my ministry. Now, to the, to the Jews' credit, they looked a little bit broader than just chapter 21 because they were concerned of what was happening with the gospel that was transpiring through the world. And it was all power-related. And so I recognize that they felt Paul was a pest to them because he was preaching in a way that was removing them from, from what they perceived as power and influence. So I get that a little bit, but still very up to interpretation. The second accusation is this, that he's a rioter, that he's a plague and he stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout all the world, that he is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. And so think of the word sect. This would be something as we might understand in our days, maybe a cult. 
So they're looking at these Nazarenes, which is the first time we see Christians called this, and it's a derogatory term. So you go back to when Jesus was named as Jesus of Nazareth, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Remember that part of the story back in Luke? When we walked through the story, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So they're pointing out all Christians to be Nazarenes, being the ones following Jesus who came out of Nazareth, and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So they basically just said, None of these Christians are of any good because they're connected to Nazareth. And Nazareth is like the armpit of where we live. No one wants to go there. And so how can anything good out of that? So they're saying they're a cult. They believe weird things and they come out of this place that's not even worth talking about. And they're creating this, this accusation that now he's drawing up a riot out of these people that are really just a cult. They're, a, they're kind of, a, they believe weird things and they're not even worth paying attention to. But what's interesting about this accusation, again, coming back to chapter 21, and you look in verses 26 and 27, Paul is going through some processes that the elders have been leading to. Um, and the, the, the people that are accusing him it says in verse 27, when the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. All throughout this whole journey, these accusations, because Paul, the ones who are causing the riots are the, one, are the ones who are making the accusations against Paul. Paul's never in a sense where he's causing the riot himself. He's not trying to get a whole lot of people around him and getting them stirred up. And you go back to an instance in chapter 21 where you see this, that the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're the ones that are stirring up the crowds to get them to accuse Paul. They're the ones that are inciting the riots. And they're turning their story, their position against Paul to use that against him. Well, now there's a riot, so clearly it's Paul's fault because he's the plague. He's the virus in the midst of this all. And Paul's just, again, defending himself, saying, hey, we, we're actually on the same page. I'm not causing riots here. I'm just sharing with people what they actually also believe, that, that we believe everything laid down by the law and the prophets, that we worship them. We're not trying to do something dramatically different in the fact that we're worshiping God. And they would hold to that too. But yet they are stirring up all these riots and they're, I'm being accused of this and this is nothing that I've done. So ask them, ask them if it's something that is true. And notice that nowhere in Acts uh, does Luke ever show that any of the Jews piped up after this. <laughs> they got quiet for the most part. And then accusation number three is that he was a defiler, that he defiled the temple. Now, again, you go back to chapter 21, what's going on. The, Paul comes back to Jerusalem to worship, to bring alms, to bring his offerings, to sacrifice. And then he meets with the elders, talks about what God has been doing. And the elders say, hey, you know what, Paul? Here's kind of what's going on. You know, the Jews are kind of getting their... Uh, stuff all up in a tizzy about this stuff. And it's because you're, you're talking about the resurrection of the dead, which Paul states to Festus. And, and you're saying there, there's these things and they, they are hearing you saying you can throw away 
all of the Old Testament. You can throw away all the law. You can throw away all the traditions. You can throw away all the rituals. And that stuff doesn't matter anymore. It's all about Jesus. Now, that's not all that Paul's saying, but he is saying, hey, essentially this, that the law and the prophets are fulfilled by Jesus. And so for salvation, what is written in the law is fulfilled by Christ. So therefore, the rituals have less importance based on salvation. It doesn't mean they're not important. And he values them. So James and the elders say, okay, Paul, let's try to, let's try to smooth over this whole thing. If you can, we've got these four guys and they're about to go through what is called the Nazarite vow. And they're gonna go through this purification process. Do it with them and pay their expenses so that it'll show the Jews that you're still with this, that you honor the value of tradition. You honor the value of, of, of doing things, of bringing your sacrifices and your honoring God in the temple place. If you would do this, I th we think that it would kind of settle, settle the storm that's around you. So Paul said, all right. Now this is a pretty big commitment because you're committing to um, eating very differently. You're committing to letting your hair grow. You're committing at the end of it all to shave your head. <laughs> like there's a whole lot of, a whole lot, for me, it's not a big deal, but there's a whole lot of things that are going on in this Nazarene vow. It's, it's time, it's commitment. It's investing in these four other young guys who are walking through this vow. And this vow is something anybody could commit to. It's something that anyone could come and say, I just wanna set myself aside for God and I wanna purify myself so that my relationship with God is holy, is, is right. And so Paul says, I'm in, let's do this. And so he steps into this process and there's a few people that saw Paul hanging out with a Greek friend the day before he went into the, this, this rite or uh, this Nazarene vow with these other guys. And they just assumed, they made the assumption that Paul then took this Greek man into the temple, which would have been against Jewish law because he would be seen as unclean because he's not a Jew. Paul got that, but he never went with this man into the temple. And Paul represents that in his defense. And he's like, call the four guys out that I went through this whole vow with. They will tell you, it was just the five of us. And we're not in the city. We're not in the crowds. We're in the temple because that's part of the vows to separate themselves from that. So he never defiled the temple. Once again, they're making an empty accusation against Paul. One by one, Paul is accused of these things. And I love Paul's response. Hey, here's the truth. And you can... You can look at what they've said and what they're saying and, and give them a chance to even speak out in verse 20 or let these men for themselves say what wrongdoing they found in all that I've done. And we don't hear from these men anymore. They don't speak up. They don't fight it. They don't push against it. But how hard it must be for Paul to be taking those hits one after the other after the other. I'm just trying to do the will of God. I was met on this road and, and, and to walk the path and the journey. I'm just trying to do what God has called me to do. And if you go back again in Acts, you realize that people were trying to, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. It's gonna be bad there. The Holy Spirit's like, it's gonna hurt, Paul. It's gonna hurt. 
And he's living in the midst of his storm and accusations and, and all these things that are coming against him. And he recognizes there's one thing in the middle of this that is true and he will totally take claim for is that he's claiming the resurrection of that. He's claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and that our salvation is based on his work on the cross and his work in defeating the grave. That'll, that'll hold you. They, they can accuse me of that all day long because yes, that is what salvation is based on. It's not based on what we do. It's based on who he is in that work. And if you want to add another thing, you go back to Acts 15, all of that, what can and can't be done, what we can hold people to, circumcision, the law, everything else. The elders actually addressed that in a very well-written letter to the world, to the church. It's already been addressed. These people are just bringing it up again and again and again, trying to push Paul down. And so Paul just wrestles with this and he's got this battle going on for two years. He's got to sit in these accusations for two years. He's got to sit in this storm for two years. And it's not just that it's one. Festus said, you know what? We're going to push pause in this. I'm going to let uh, this other guy come down and we're going to address it then. And then we're going to get into something next week. We're going to see it continue. But Paul's living in the storm of his life, these accusations, this hardship for two years. It's tough. I would say that a lot of this, that you think of the eye of that storm, that Paul's right on the outer side of that eye wall. He's just getting hit left and right, left and right. Here's something interesting though, and I think that is, is drawn out to me as I've looked over these next two weeks is, man, when, when the spirit knew that Paul was gonna go through some hardship, and Pastor Keith talked about this last week, that, that Paul was immediately taken and put into protection. This is a side note. This is a good side note. Was put into protection because they sought to kill him. And for the next two years, the last few years of Paul's life, he was uh, understood to be released for a while. And then he was martyred later on. But in this time of protection, over these next couple of years, do y'all know what happens? What's done over these next couple of years? Most of the New Testament is written while Paul is in prison. While he's being protected. <laughs> Hold on to that note, come back next week. Because <laughs> that's awesome. But Paul does, and is invited into an interesting thing after he's, this whole uh, Legal battle is kind of put into place. Festus says, let's pause in this. We're going to wait. And he puts him into, um, into his prison cell or the upper room that he's held captive in. And Festus does an interesting thing. It says in verse 22 that he has a ra rather accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity. So Festus has an idea of what's happening around Christianity at this point, off, point on. And he has his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. So we have a pretty good idea of Drusilla's Jewish. She has an understanding of the law. She has an understanding of the prophecy. She has an understanding of the prophesied coming Messiah and all the story that's been swirling around the person of Jesus. And so Felix invites Paul into his presence to talk about his faith. 
And I love that. That amidst all of the storm that Paul is going to go through over these next years of his life, the Spirit of God moves in a way to put him in a position to share his faith with one of the rulers of the Roman Empire. Not only Felix, but we're going to see over the next couple of weeks the different leaders that he'll have the chance to share these things with. And I love this part of the story. In verse 24, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 25, and Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed. In some translations, it says Felix trembled or shook. That when Paul spoke of the gospel in the way that he did, Felix was moved by it. We don't know if that was moved out of fear. We don't know if that was moved out of like, you're making sense and this scares me. We know this about Felix, uh, um, that, that, uh, that he wasn't the best guy in the world. He got to his position because of friends and family. And he wasn't the greatest guy. And his, even his wife, he kind of worked it out to, to make her his wife. But yet he's in this place and he's hearing the gospel being preached and Paul draws on these three points for him. Which is straight up the gospel. He points out and reasons to them righteousness. Now, Felix isn't the best ruler. He's probably not living up to the letter of the law himself. And Paul recognizes that. But he's also trying to speak to the journey while speaking the gospel. So he speaks first to righteousness. And this is what righteousness is. It's not about being right. It's about being made right. It's not about being right. It's about being made right. Righteousness is not about me being right about something. It's about how God has made me right. There's another word called justification. It's about justifying. It's bringing us in alignment with God through the work of Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection was what made us righteous. It made us right with God. It justified us, again, to align us to the way we were created, going all the way back to Genesis. That's what righteousness is. And when we live in that truth, we understand that because of the work of Jesus, I am made right with God. That's a difference than being right. You guys catching that difference? Paul's trying to illuminate that for, for Felix saying, it's, this is what Jesus is about, this resurrection from the dead that I'm speaking of, that I'm preaching of, that I'm being accused about, is an understanding that we are being made right through the work of Christ in the cross. Romans 3, 23, 3.22-26 says this, in understanding our righteousness. It's going to be on the screen in a second, I promise. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, so being made right with God through the faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was written by Paul. This is what he's sharing with Felix. This is what he's sharing with us as a church, that we understand that it's God making us right through the person of Jesus. 
And it goes on to say that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Speaking of the law, the Passover, the festivals that Paul's willing to celebrate, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. He's the one that makes us just. He's the one that justifies of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the work of God to make us right. Paul enters in the gospel at this point. And then he moves on to this idea of self-control. Now, self-control is in our ability ourselves to say, I cannot eat this or that, or I can drive the speed limit and I'm fine. I'm going to make that decision. Self-control that Paul's talking about is a submission, not to our own nature, but to the nature of God. That we, through the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to the nature of God and the nature of God does a powerful work in and through us. Paul writes this in Galatians 5. He says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law that these things are the nature and the character of God being worked out in us. We're being sanctified to have this nature of God consume and take over us that we live more like him. So Paul's reasoning this with Felix saying that as we submit ourselves to the nature of Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection, we are changed. And so we have this self-control. So we live differently. We make decisions differently. The world around us changes. We approach it differently. Because of the work of Jesus, we can do this. And then he talks about the hard one, the coming judgment. Which again, for Drusilla, who's listening in, this isn't gonna be news to her. He even said in his defense, like every one of the Jews understands that this is coming. And this coming judgment is essentially, it's an account that which we are going to be held of our lives that we have to bring our lives before the throne of God and how those lives have been lived is gonna be laid out for us. But again, as Paul's preaching the gospel in the person of Jesus, it changes everything at the judgment seat because where we sit in that judgment seat, Jesus comes along and says, here, stand up real quick. And he sits down and says, I got Jason covered. This seat is mine and I paid for it through my death and my resurrection. He's covered. I've made him right and righteous. I've given him the ability to live and submit in self-control to the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's a different person. And he's preaching this gospel to Felix and Drusilla. And he goes back many times. Now, Felix, because he's just, you know, not the sharpest guy, not the best guy. He's saying like, hey, if you give me some money, I'll get, out of, I'll get you out. Like if you just feed me some money, like we can get out of this whole situation. But Paul doesn't take that. He doesn't offer anything because there's value in the midst of Paul's storm that he goes, you keep asking me back to talk to you about Jesus. Why would I go? I know I've got all this stuff and all these accusations around me, but if you want to hear about Jesus, I want to be here. If you want to be hearing about how to be made right with God and how to live a life that is fulfilling and fruitful, if you want to learn about how at that judgment seat, Christ has paid it all, I want to be here. 
We later hear from Paul that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like we understand that Paul's perspective is this. I want to live in the midst of my storm because in the midst of my storm, there's a place of calm. And in the midst of my storm, there's the truth and the hope of the gospel. And that calms everything down. Because all those, there's chaos going on around me. I am confident in this. And I want you to be confident in that too. That in all the world and all the things that are gonna swirl around you, there's a foundation we can stand on that will not be shaken. And I love that Paul takes it in and says, let's make the most of these moments. I don't know about you. If I had those accusations flying at me, I'd want to fight. Yeah, I'd want to stir up a riot. I'd want to, you know, throw some punches. I'd want to put out some words and and get defensive. I'd want to say all the right things to show that they're actually the ones that need to be accused. Paul never accused. He just said, hey, this is just what I've done. And if I have... If any of it is true, I mean, hold that against me. He never accused the Jews of anything, if you read the passage. He never said, they're the liars. He never said, you're at fault. He never said, you're falling apart yourselves. You're the sinners. You're the ones going to hell. He never said any of that. He just said, this is just my story. And then when he was taken out of that instance, out of the storm, he was just simply brought to the place like, wait, you want to hear the gospel? That in the midst of all this chaos, I get to share the truth of the power and the work of Jesus Christ. Adam, all day, let's sit down, let's go. Let's talk about being made right with God. Let's talk about how the, the work of the Spirit will produce fruitfulness in us. Let's talk about that in the coming judgment that Jesus has paid it all. I want you to know that, Felix, Drusilla. I want the world to know that truth. I love that about Paul. And so it makes me wonder for myself and it makes me wonder for us. We all have storms. Go back to that circle I had you draw on your card if you did or that mental circle in your mind. That's your eye of your storm. I wonder in the outer edge of that circle what you could write down that would be the most torrential, destructive, this mind-blowing part of your world right now. Maybe there's stuff going on in your marriage. Maybe there's stuff going on at work. Maybe in a friendship or a relationship. Maybe it's a financial thing. I don't know what it may be. But man, it just feels like it's just destroying everything around you. And it's just sending you in a stir. Like, I don't know what to make of all of this. I get that. And if you're anything like me, I'd want to fight against that. I'd want to do everything I could to try to stop that storm from happening. Here's my encouragement. If you write down what that may be around your circle, what may be stirring around you, in the middle of that, God is present. In the middle of all of that, there's hope and there's grace and there's peace because of the person and the work of Jesus. The presence of the Holy Spirit is right there in the center of your storm. Calming things down. Now, it may just be for a moment, and that doesn't mean everything is swirling around you isn't going to cause some destruction. But we have hope in what is coming. That that storm will end, 
and what we experience and the peace and the hope and, and the center of it all is what will be our experience for eternity in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul got that. He understood that for himself to the point that he also understood that because I know this as truth and I know that it's true and that God is doing this work in me that I can share his work with others so they can experience the same. And so folks, I wanna encourage you, whatever's swirling in your world, at the center of all, Jesus is the foundation, the rock. And the spirit is working. And maybe we need to sit in that this morning and to say, thank you. But maybe some of us are like, okay, I, I get that. I'm standing on the rock. I'm holding strong. I'm holding on to that hope and that peace that's there. And maybe in the middle of our storm, even though our storm is there, that we can speak life and hope into someone else's storm through the work of the Spirit in and through you. And it's just being willing to do that just like Paul was. I got my own chaos, but man, if I have an opportunity to share hope with you, I'm gonna share hope with you. So the Spirit wants to minister in you, but he also wants to minister through you. And we just need to take time to pause and to settle in and to understand that hope and that truth in us. Paul's circumstance lasted a few years. Maybe, he's our, maybe ours does too. But he never let go of the gospel. And remember that even in the midst of his storm, we have this book because of his commitment to the work and the foundation of Christ. Because in the middle of his storm, he wrote a, most of the New Testament to give that life and to give that hope for the whole world that the spirit worked through him in that way. Which is pretty awesome. I want you guys to close your eyes real quick. Imagine that circle in your mind of what is stirring around you, what is happening in your life, in your circumstance. And as best as you can, I want you to think about what it might look like to have just a little bit of room to breathe, a little bit of hope to hold on to. What would it be like to hear the words, I have you, I'm for you, I'm with you. There's an encouragement in that that's so, so powerful. I never want any of us to ever walk out of this room on any given Sunday and not remember those words. That Jesus died for you on the cross, knowing your chaos and your storm to make you right with God, to shape you to become more in the nature of who he is, how you were created to be, and a promise for an eternal future with him where the payment has been made and he sits on the seat of judgment for you that no matter what you come with, he's got it covered. That's a beautiful thing. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up here and we're gonna do some worship, but we're gonna celebrate in communion together. This truth of what God has done, this truth of this payment that makes us right with God, 
this truth of the promise that he will shape you to become more like him and how you were created to be. This truth that, that we know what is to come. It's a promise that we hold secure in the person of Jesus. And so as a church, on a regular basis, we come to celebrate what is called communion. What Jesus brought to his disciples before he went to the cross to say, this is my body which is broken for you, my blood which is shed for you to make the payment of your sins. Paul writes this. Again, while he was in prison, he writes this to the church to remind us in all the chaos in the, in the church of Corinth, which has just fallen apart because of all of their chaos. He pulls it back and says, hey, everybody, pay attention to this. Remember what Jesus said that we remember, we reflect on the work of the cross and the payment through his shed blood and his broken body for us. And so as a church, we come to celebrate that together this morning. And so there's four tables throughout the room. There's two up front, two on the sides. And on those tables, you'll find this cup. And the small portion of the cup is just a, a small portion of bread, which represents the body of Christ. This is Christ's body, which was broken for you through his death to make the payment of sins. And on the other side of that cup is the juice representing his blood, which was shed for you, which we understand from scripture is, is the, the sacrament of, of that sacrifice that covers that sin and that says that it's paid. He gave it all for us. So in a moment, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite you to come to these tables. Maybe come as, as, as yourself, as an individual. Come as a family. Come with your spouse. Come with a friend. Come as a life group. And take hold of the cup and the bread. And step off to the side or go back to your seats and, and open that cup and hold that bread in your hand with that open cup before you. And here's what I want you to do. To breathe in the moment and close your eyes and say, this is what has been paid for me. So we don't just go through the ritual or the tradition of an act of, of communion, but we breathe in the truth of the promise that we are saved and made right with God because of what we partake. And we do it in remembrance of Jesus as a celebration of that work. So as you come forward, while the band leads us in a couple more songs, take hold of the bread and the cup, find your place, partake of that on your own, and then just simply set the cup on the floor and let's worship together. Because God is good, amen? God is gracious that in the middle of our storm, he gave us this so that we have peace and confidence and a rock to stand on. Father, we just come and recognize that it is not our own power and not by our own might that we could ever accomplish making right our relationship with you. But Lord, only through your work, your broken body and your shed blood, Lord, that we can have this relationship with you, the promise of eternity. So Father, as we come before you, if there's things that we need to get resolved with you, Lord, Spirit, work in our lives to let us speak that out. 
and to put it before you and seek forgiveness. Maybe it's with another in the room that we need to seek forgiveness before we come to the table. Or a commitment to, to seek that forgiveness in this coming week. Lord, help us to move to that place. But Lord, help us to remember this work that you've done for us, just as Paul did. Drawing out the truth. And Lord, whatever storms we have, may our reflection and our remembrance and our celebration of your, your work for us, may it meet us in the middle of that storm. And we may have moments of peace with you. Let's come to the table and let's worship together this morning.